Our scripture reading this morning is from the Gospel of Matthew, the 27th chapter. Now, from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders, hearing it, said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly this was the Son of God. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene, and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him, and Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud, and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance to the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, After three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people, He is risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. This is the word of the Lord. Psalm 66, we're going to start praying through verse 16, Psalm 66. Heavenly Father, we we come to You, God. You, You command us to come and to listen. And I pray that You would give us hearts that fear You. God, that we would come to You with deep reverence and with deep awe, God. God, I pray that You would reveal to us all that You have done for Your sake and for Your glory, but also for our benefit that we might enjoy You and glorify You forever, God. God, we've we've cried out with our tongue and we've praised You with with our mouths, God. But we have this sin, this sin within our hearts that we sometimes, God, we cherish it. 
God, I pray that you would listen to our cries, that our sin would not so inhibit our praise to you, our cries to you, God. Father, we we rejoice that through Christ, through your Son, that you have listened to us and that you have heard our voices crying out to you in prayer, God. Praise be to you, God, for you have not rejected our prayer, nor have you withheld your love from us, God. And in this time, if we have just proclaimed, I pray that you would reveal to us your glory and that you would show us Christ. And show us Christ in a way that we have never seen Him. Amen. Amen. Well, as you guys know, God loves a humble and a contrite heart. To some of us, He gives it to us through suffering and the circumstances of suffering. Others, He just gives it to people naturally. They're they're the salt of the earth. Just humble people. You would would encounter this quite frequently around the family farm. You'd be this wealthy, wealthy farmer still wearing dirty jeans they've had for eight years. Just humble guys. And other people, like our family, God wants us to be humble, and He gives us children. And... With these children, we're surrounded constantly, constantly with voices. We have the voices of the children crying out from early, early in the morning until the straggler child who doesn't quite want to fall asleep at night. And then the voices of the, the super moms who look down upon you, you know, as they cast their gaze away from Instagram and their most recent mom blog to kind of look at you when your children aren't walking in a line like the Von Trapp family walking away. And there's not only the voices among you and the voices younger than you, but there are also the voices a generation ahead of you, your parents. And then it happens. The kids are acting up. You're at the grandparents' house. The kids are acting up. They're, they're kind of watching. And before you know it, what happens? The very words of your mother come streaming out of your mouth through your own children. And you know in that horrific moment, you're chasing the words. You want them to come back, but it's too late. And in that horrific moment, you know they were right. (laughs) Mom was right. And she knows it. That's what's even worse. She's smiling as, as she sees all this happening. She knows it. And it's kind of the same thing, a little bit, what we see in our text here this morning. The whole ministry of Christ is is coming to this this climactic moment, right? And here's your Messiah. He's laid up on on the cross, and we have this all of these voices again, and we all of these scoffers calling out what he should do, who he is, who he is, mocking him. And out of all of this brambling of voices comes this clear call of the centurion. Truly, this man was the Son of God. In such a setting could that have been you? Is your faith that strong? Or is, is all of this just facts and truths? But there's, there's no affection in your heart that would stir you in such a setting to proclaim the glories of God 
in who Christ is? Is your affections, are they so stirred that you cannot help but to proclaim your faith in the forsaken Messiah? And that's our, our theme, our main idea that we're going to be driving home is that you should, you must dwell on this throughout this week. Proclaim your faith in the forsaken Messiah. You need them both, right? You proclaim your faith without a forsaken Messiah, big deal. Join any other religion. Have that. You have your forsaken Messiah without a proclamation of faith. Well, then you don't truly cherish it the way you should. I would continue. So, well, we're going to look at this. Verses 45 through 50, we're going to be looking at the forsaken Messiah. This one who was promised to us long ago is now has his the face of God turn away from him. And and admittedly, this sermon would be much different if that's all that we had for our verses, for our text. But we have so much more. So we have this this also, this proclamation of your faith. And then we're going to see that in in the rocks and the stones and the earthquakes and creation crying out and the centurion and the women and and the the Sanhedrin themselves. And then also the high priest and the other Pharisees. So, my friends, we have... The forsaken Messiah, what are you to do with it? Well, you proclaim your faith in Him. Right? That's where we're going to be going. So just to recap, to give us a little runway of where we've been. We're, as you know, we're nearing the conclusion of where Matthew wants to bring us. Very, very close to the end. And, and the festivities of the Passover are this perfect backdrop for the sufferings of Christ that are about to come. And Jesus is reclined with his disciples at the table and it's, they break bread for the last time until they break bread again when you guys, if you're in Christ, will be there. And the intimacy of this upper room now grows into the public setting of the Mount of Olives and the Garden of Gethsemane. And with much bravado, we are reminded that none of the disciples will disown Him, right? But man is never quite aware of the evil within his soul. On the outside, it seems pleasing to the eyes, but it's just a thin veneer of the evil that is stirring within their hearts and stirring within your hearts as well. And in the eyes, but this evil stirring beneath them, as Justin reminded us, they, we make the same hypocritical oath that we will never betray him nor forsake him. The troops arrive and the mockery begins and they have this trial in search of a crime. So what is it? Is he profaning the temple? Sure, if we can get him on it, yeah. Why not? Blasphemy? Sure, if we can get on it. Get him on it, why not? Oh, is, oh wait, no. Let's do this one. He's causing an uprising. Then we'll use a political angle for Pilate. Okay, let's do that. So then they go off to Pilate, right? So they go from Annas to, to Caiaphas, the high priest, and then off to Pilate and the Herod, and then back to Pilate. And truly, he's alone the whole way. He's proving himself to be innocent. It's as though there's this one who is innocent who's going to take the place of the one who is guilty. And Barabbas, the one who is guilty, who should be condemned for all of his sin, is rebellion against the rulers above him, rebellion against God. 
He's set free. What a picture. What a glorious picture. And there's Adam covered. And then we have this enthronement of the King. The King of all kings and the Lord of all lords and this, the King of the kingdom that shall not end has come down and it, again it looks nothing like we would expect. What is this robe? It's just given to him. Extra cloth they have lying around. That's his robe. What's his crown? Thorns. It's not gold. It's not full of diadems. No. No silver. Just thorns. What's this scepter of judgment? Remember the one he's the one from whom this scepter shall not depart? You see? Genesis forty nine. What's his scepter? Oh, it's a reed, the stem of a, a a weak little plant. And they hail out to him, right? Not truthfully, just mockingly. Hail, hail, King of the Jews. We don't know for sure. It's possible the same centurion was amongst those mocking him at that time. And so, here is your king of all kings, and he's walking down this Via della Rosa, the, the way of suffering through Jerusalem, going out to Golgotha, and he's stumbling and he's staggering. And this is the picture of the upside-down kingdom that we have presented throughout Matthew. This is the pinnacle of it all. And there he is. He's laid out on, on the cross and the spikes go through his quivering skin. And he's raised up. Now, behold your enthroned king. There enthroned upon Let's go to our text and see what happens next. Verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, that is from, from the six other Jewish times, beginning at 6 a.m., so then from noon, from, from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all of the land until the ninth, 3, 3 p.m., the ninth hour. And in the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and save him. Every way they're mocking him, right? And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice. And he yielded up his spirit. And the sufferings of Christ can hardly be contained, my friends, to what is, what is seen with the eye. Darkness has come over the land as a picture of God's judgment coming upon them. The nails have gone and pierced His skin. And there's the suffocation as well. If He wants to draw breath, as Adam shared, He has to pull Himself up, making it incredibly painful even to breathe. And this long, drawn-out suffering which on the cross, which was invented by the Phoenicians, perfected by the Romans, is a picture of, just a picture of what's really happening behind the scenes that we can't see. Of here is God pouring out His wrath upon His Son, 
truly, truly, he was the spotless lamb that was led to the slaughter. We read it so often, but it's so perfect, as Isaiah writes. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced. Why? For our transgressions. He was crushed. Why? For our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray, each one of us to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him, upon Christ, upon the cross, has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. The judgment of God is pouring out in Christ. Remember, this is the judgment that he was, he was seeing coming when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane and it's bringing him to the verge of desperation, but he, he cries out, God, not my will, but your will be done. And what do you see upon that bloody cross? You see the will of God being carried out. And he has, as you go through all of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you, you see these seven different sayings. And while he's on, on the cross, he's saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You see in Luke, well, he's talking about those who are mocking him and actually crucifying him. And he says to the robber beside him, Truly, I, I, you will be with me today in paradise. And then in John, you see, he tells... Woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. Is, is John, the apostle, is actually his cousin. So he's given his mother Mary, who is John's aunt, to him to take care of him. And then we have it recorded in Matthew. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he also says, I thirst as well, which... Actually, it gives pretty good context to verse 48 when he says, And one of them at once ran to take, uh, took a sponge. Well, why would he do that? And wrestled and wrestled until I read through John. And went, Oh, he said, I thirst. Well, that's why he ran and got the sponge. Well, that makes sense. And then finally, and then going on, he says, It is finished. And then at the end, we see in Luke, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. All of these different sayings going on in the cross. And how many does Matthew write about? What does it give us? One. Even when, if he, even if he would have added, I thirst to give a little better context of what's going on, he, he, he leaves it out to what? Just to highlight this one. This one saying is critical to this understanding of what's going on in this Gospel of Matthew. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of this... This we, some of the Roman bystanders, the Jewish here would have picked up the difference, but some of the Roman bystanders, the soldiers, other people, they confuse this, this Eli, Eli, this, this, which is my God, my God. They confuse that with, with Elias, which is Elijah from the Old Testament. So the Roman soldiers, they went to Ben from Rome, but they're soldiers from that province. Not Jewish, obviously, but they would have had some understanding of Elijah and this and that just from interaction with the Jewish people. So that's why they're saying, oh, he's calling out for Elijah. But no, no, he's not doing that. That's far more beautiful than that. He doesn't need someone to come and rescue him. No, 
Not at all. He's bringing us to this beautiful Davidic psalm that was penned a thousand years earlier. You can go ahead and turn there if you want to Psalm 22. He cries out. The psalm where David writes here and he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you see in Deuteronomy 31, what did God the Father promise? I will not leave you nor forsake you. Right? But here is Christ. He is forsaken so that we might not be forsaken by God. God has, has turned His face from Christ so that He might turn His face towards us. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer by night, but I find no rest. Down to verse 7. All who mock me, they make mouths at me, they wake their heads. He trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him. Let him rescue himself, for he delights in him. Then you see in Matthew, right? And they're calling out, well, he saved others. But he cannot save himself. They're mocking. Verse 14. I am poured out like water, and all my, jo- my bones are out of joint which is what's happening when he's pulling himself up so that he can take a breath and go back down. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a posture and my tongue sticks to my jaws. I thirst. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. My friends, could this be any more clear? Verse 18. They divide up my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. Matthew writes. And when they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves. By what? By casting lots. Go down to verse 23. We see, how are we to respond? What are we to do with this? What are we to do? Verse 23. You who fear the Lord, praise Him. All of you offspring of Jacob, glorify Him. And what? Stand in awe of Him, all you offspring of Israel. And here is the centurion. And what is he filled with? He's filled with awe of what he has beheld. Verse 24, for he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from me, but he has heard and when he cried. He has has heard when he cried to him. And there in the darkness, God was with him. In the midst of his suffering, there was God with him. In verse 28, for the kingship belongs to the Lord. This is Jesus, the placard says. This is Jesus, King of the Jew. And they would have, on the Via Della Rosa, those way to the, to the place of suffering, they would have carried this placard in front of them and everybody would have seen it. Here's the King of the Jews, this one carrying the cross. You can't even carry it. For he rules all over, over all the nations. Go to the end. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore. All of the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow down all who go to the dust. Remember, as Paul writes, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. 
even when the one who cannot keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. Verse 31, they shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. And what do you see out of the centurion? What is he doing? You see this psalm fulfilled in the centurion, do you not? Truly this was the Son of God. What a beautiful, beautiful thing. And all of this communicated in four words. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. What a beautiful, beautiful thing. So Jesus Christ, He he cries out and he, with a loud voice, He yields up His Spirit. And let, let us be ever so clear, my friends. He is the one who gave Himself to death. Death did not come and steal His life, but no, He gave Himself to death. Right? So He becomes, He leaves the throne room of God and becomes humanity. Why? To redeem Humanity, that he might be like us in every aspect, but without sin. So he, he leaves the throne room of God and becomes humanity to redeem humanity. And then as humanity, he enters into death. Why? To redeem us from death. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And the author of Hebrews writes so that he does this so that he might taste death for everyone. First John, John writes, he said that he might, he has died so that he might destroy the works of the devil, death. And finally, we see in Isaiah 25 that he has swallowed up death forever. A Messiah who has come and lived and not died is not a Messiah, my friends. A Messiah who's come and died and not risen is not to be worshipped. So how do we how do we respond? We see this throughout all of the gospels, throughout all of creation. This is one of the the, the pinnacle, the crucifixion, and then the resurrection. This this pinnacle until we get into this glorious day. What are we to do? How are we to respond, my friend? What are we to do? Let's let's just stay in the text as Matthew answers it for us. What are we to do? Well, let's read verses 51 to 53. And behold, so here is Matthew drawing us in, drawing us in. And behold, he said, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks were split and the tombs were opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Everything of the old is passing away. Is that what, don't you see that? The, the effects of sin and the fall are going away. This, this separation from God that we have from the garden is being diminished. And death itself, the effect of the fall, is being undone. So the temple of the, of the curtain separating the Holy of Holies is the, the dwelling place of God from man. It would never be moved. But, but once a year. Just so someone could go in, sneak themselves in, go into the presence of God. And as we were talking about during Sunday school this morning, they would have bells all over them so in case they fell over dead. 
They would also have a rope tied to their ankle, and then the priest could pull them out because they aren't going in after he dies. So you stop hearing the jingle, you know something bad's happened. So the, the, the priest, the, they were going there once a year. This curtain, it would not move. It was massive, by the way. 60 feet tall, 30 feet wide, depth, size of your palm. Torn in two. So God is no longer dwelling in the Holy of Holies, but He's he's out there dwelling in you. The dwelling place of God is still in the temple, but now you are the temple. This, This massive separation that we've had from God, from the garden, is now being undone. The effects of, of the fall are being undone as the kingdom of heaven advances forward and advances forward. Well, what else do you see? The, the, the curtain is being undone and, and the, it's like creation itself is, is being undone, right? The earth is shaking. The rocks are splitting. All of creation is, is being undone and the old is passing away and the new is coming as, as Haggai wrote. Once more, in a little while, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. Well, what does that mean? Well, the author of Hebrews interprets it. He says, this phrase, yet once more, referring back to Haggai, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made, the old creation, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Remember, repent, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Or this whole gospel, we've been reminded about this kingdom. This kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. So this earth itself is shaking. Rocks are splitting. The earth is groaning for this new kingdom. So then here's a foretaste of this new kingdom. What does it look like? Ah, the dead are coming alive. This actually happens after the resurrection of Christ. It was the first fruits of the new kingdom. But in his literary freedom, Matthew brings it beforehand. He lets you know. And so you see the effects of the fall are completely being undone. The separation from God as they're cast out of the garden. Even death itself. As being undone, not just in Christ, but in among the saints, among you guys. The effects of the fall are being undone. So it seems a little odd, but does it happen? Yes, it happened. We see it with Lazarus, right? And quite frankly, if it didn't, you have no hope. So now we get to the main question that Matthew has been teasing with us, drawing it out, drawing it up, because we see it in Psalm 22, and we're asking ourselves, how do we respond? What do we do? Well, Matthew provides it for us in verse 54 here. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earth quake and what had took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. Your response, our response, your response is to be that of the centurion, that truly this was the Son of God. There's no wavering, there's no time for delay, my friend. Pray. Pray to God that you might be filled with with awe and proclaim 
His glories. So not only was that which was dead in the tombs and coming back to life, but we see that life was coming out of the tombs of death even within the centurion's heart. New life is coming forth. And this one who had done this, had done these crucifixions probably countless times before. Countless times before is now peering into the eyes of men who have crossed into the crossed the Rubicon into death. He's done this many times. But as he sees Christ, something different. There's something different with Jesus on the cross. And it demands a response, my friends. It demands a response. We sit here and we hear this week after week after week. It demands a response of you, just as the centurion did this time after time after time. He sees Jesus on the cross and he knows he must respond. He responds in faith. My friend, you've heard this countless times. I trust, I hope, that Christ has died on the cross for your sins. You hear it growing up. You hear it when you go to sleep. My friend, this still demands a response from you just as it did the centurion. It demands a response. He knew so little, but what he knew he could not help but to proclaim and in the midst of his co-workers, right? There he is. He's not in the safety of the sanctuary or the church, right? There he is, in the midst of his regular life. He's proclaiming all that he knows to all that he can tell. Could that be you? Are you so filled with awe of this Christ who is crucified, this one who was forsaken for you, are you so filled with all? Is your heart so filled with this, with affection that you cannot help but to tell other people, I pray that you are. And so this, this continues on, right? Earth itself, the, the old creation is being undone and we see new life coming out of it just like, just like we see new life coming out of the waters of judgment and creation and out of the exodus, we see new life coming out. Now we see new life again coming out in this eternal kingdom. The first fruits is that out of death, there comes life. And the centurion proclaims all that he knows among all that he can tell. Everybody around him. But then it doesn't stop there. There is the women. Watching. Watching. Not fleeing. Like the disciples, passive men, do. Flee. Looks like conflict. We better go. Women, you sit here and I'll play around, right? And then the twist and the turn, they continue, right? So then, who is the one burying him? It's, it's Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, we see in another gospel. So these two men were members of the Sanhedrin. The very group that had condemned him to death. Their, their hidden affection, their hidden love for him is now out there for all to see. And it cost him greatly. It cost him everything they have. And there they are as the sun is beginning to set. Hastily, hastily, taking cloths and wrapping him up, filling him the, the, in the myrrh and everything else to prepare the body. The sun is beginning to ebb and beginning to lower and lower and lower. Their affections are set towards Christ and towards His body. 
And so we see that this demands a response. But not all of not all of you, even, will confess like the centurion. Not all of you will stay so close, even though it socially breaks many barriers. You stay so close because you are so drawn to Christ like the women did. And not all of you will forsake everything just to care for the body of Christ like Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. But some are like the chief priests and the Pharisees who endeavor to do everything they can to keep them in the grave. Let's just finish with this. Go to verse 64. Therefore, order the tomb, they, they tell Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. For the last fraud will be made worse than the first. So they go along and then they seal the stone and they set a guard there. They're, they're doing all that they can to keep him in the tomb. All that they can to keep them in the tomb. And that is some of us. That is some of you. Not wanting to come to terms with this Messiah and what that means in your life. That you must forsake everything. Like Joseph of Marimathea and Nicodemus. That you must make these proclamations of His glory and of His grace like the centurion. But no, you'd be much more comfortable just to stay in your group, to stay among the Pharisees. Be highly regarded among the people, but you've got to keep Jesus in the tomb. You can't have both. That is some of you. Do not let your heart grow cold. Do not let your heart grow cold. Act upon what you know. Proclaim His glories. Proclaim your faith in this Messiah. Proclaim in your faith that truly, truly this One, this forsaken Messiah, that truly, truly, my friend, proclaim it everywhere that He is the Son of God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we we see the old being undone and the new coming forth, God. And I pray that you would work that in our hearts. That you would shake our hearts, that you would you cracked open the rocks, that you would crack open our hearts, God, that new life would come out of these tombs. These places of death. God, I pray that your spirit would work in us, God, that we would See the centurion and not just gloss over it, but God, that we would be challenged. That this week, all of our affections might be upon your Son. That your love for us would so richly dwell in us that we cannot contain our love for you, God. And keep us, God, keep us throughout this week. Draw us close to you and never let us go. Amen.